Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. Say this with me. I have decided to follow Jesus. Good thing I said that. You didn't know where I was going with that, did you? I have decided to follow Jesus. There's a song that we sang when I was growing up, something like this. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Verse 2, though none go with me, I still follow. Though none go with me, I still follow. Though none go with me, I still follow. No turning back, no turning back. Third verse, the world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. Keep on, the world behind me, the cross be. This why I don't lead worship. No turning back, stay on the base. Anyway, no turning back. But we would sing this song on Sundays, and it was just one of those things that just was really catchy. But this song, if you're not familiar with this, it was written in the early 1900s. And there, there's, a little, there's some different versions of the origin of this song, but most accounts say that these are the words of a man who was converted to Christianity, and he was from a tribe in India. Now, he was so excited. He, these, these Baptist missionaries say, praise God for the Baptists. Amen. The Baptist missionaries came into this tribe and he found Jesus because Jesus was always there, never went anywhere, but he found Jesus. And when he found Jesus, he and his whole family converted and they were so excited. They started sharing it with the whole tribe. Well, of course, the chief of the tribe was infuriated at this because they had other gods to serve. And so the story goes something like this, that he and his family were dragged before the village and the chief told him to renounce Jesus. And his answer was, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. At which point, the chief had his children killed in front of him. The chief looked at him and said, you need to give up on this Jesus and renounce him and stop following this Jesus. And his answer was, though none go with me, I will follow, no turning back. So they killed his wife in front of him. The chief looked at him and said, so now you're going to renounce Jesus. No more following of this Jesus. One last time the chief gave him a chance to which he said, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. And the chief had him killed right there on the spot. Beautiful story of someone's dedication to Jesus. And again, there's a few different accounts of this, but they all trickle back to this tribe in India. But what's interesting to me is that this man facing certain death, even as a newer Christian, a new believer in this Jesus said, there's no turning back. There's nothing you can throw at me to turn me away from this Jesus because it's just too good. Now, I know for, for us, we don't really experience this type of treatment, right? I mean, the apostles did. The apostles died for this cause of Jesus, for the cause of what they refer to as the way. But again, today, we don't face certain death, physically speaking, do we, for following Jesus? But we still have brothers and sisters in this world who do. 
But for us, following Jesus, let me just, because, you know, I think it's important to address where we are. Because I know that for the most part, if I say I'm following Jesus and not renouncing him, no one's going to shoot me. No one's going to kill me. But here's the thing. When you follow Jesus, there certainly can be ridicule. Anyone here? Even from religious, those who consider themselves fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when you truly follow Jesus, I want you to get this. When you truly follow Jesus, it could mean not following the status quo. Whether that be bad theology, a certain denomination, political parties, the ways of the world, including what? Anger, hatred, unforgiveness, bitterness, retribution. See, what we're really talking about here today in this message that I've actually entitled, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, is the idea of discipleship. Say discipleship. Being a follower of Jesus. I want to look at a scripture here in John chapter 13. And I believe that today as we go through this, I'm hoping that you'll grasp onto something that either confirms what you know, whether in your head or your heart, or maybe it gives you a new way of thinking to embrace something that's outside of the box that you've been living in when it comes to discipleship. But look at this in John 13, starting with verse 34. This is Jesus speaking. He says, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Here it is. Love each other. What commandment did Jesus give us? Love each other. How? He goes on to say, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. That it opens up a whole can there, right? Like, how does Jesus love? Like, you literally might have to dig into the book and the history and say, how was Jesus a lover of people? But look at verse 35. Your love for one another, this is huge, your love for one another will prove to... God, I got Bruce here today to let me know when I got my scriptures wrong. Your love for one another will prove to your neighbor, kind of, but to who? The world that you're on my disciples. You notice it doesn't even say your love for one another will prove to yourself. So many times we're trying to prove ourselves, aren't we? But it's saying it will prove to the world, everybody, everything in the world, that you are my disciples. Now, when Jesus was speaking this, how many know he was speaking in the first century to his 12, the 12 disciples, the 12 followers, right? That's where he was in context. And if we look at the life of the disciples of Jesus, we can see five characteristics of a disciple. Now... We do know this, that they all grew on to maturity, didn't they? How many can say, I've, I've been on that journey myself? But if we were to say the five characteristics while Jesus walked this earth of what a disciple is, what would they be according to his followers in the first century? Number one, the five characteristics of a disciple. Number one, you keep pestering Jesus about who he will give more power to in heaven. Are you writing this down? This is really good stuff. Number two, you have no theological training but own a small fishing business which somehow makes you qualified because you get it. Are you writing these down? These are good. Number three, this is a good one, guys. Remember this, to be a disciple in the first century, walking with Jesus. 
People ask you if you know Jesus, you freak out, you say no, and you run away. Number four, you teach bad theology and have to have someone else come over and correct you. And number five, least, or last but certainly not least, you choose other disciples, the ones you have to replace, by playing rock, paper, scissors, which they actually drew straws. Of course, I'm being facetious, right? But if we were to actually say, what are the characteristics of a disciple? And look at those who follow Jesus. This stuff literally happened. Which, uh, it, it tells me something. It, it helps me to, to learn from this situation and to see things in a different light. It makes me realize us that we're human just like the first disciples. Sometimes we get it Wrong. Do you realize that when Jesus called these young men, many believe, many scholars and theologians believe that they were just teenagers, other than Peter, when they were first called? These young men. Now, of course, in the first century, I would say they were a little more mature than maybe our teenagers today, but nonetheless, very young men, right? But they weren't men who Jesus called because they lived perfect lives without any issues. They had issues all through their ministry, even after Jesus. But you saw this maturity and you saw this growth on their journey. See, a disciple, by definition, is simply this, a learner. How many would say that I'm a learner? Just in in life in general, we're learners. We should be. If you stop learning, there's a problem. Because if you stop learning, you stop growing. That's what I found in my own life. They were learning from their master about what being a disciple was. Now I want to look at John 13 here. And I want to look at it here in the mirror translation. I love this translation. Look at verse 34 again. He says, I give you a new commandment. Keep on loving one another just as I have loved you. My love for you is the source of your love for one another. Now, already he's helping us out here. He's saying, you don't have to love people on your own. This isn't something you're conjuring up and trying to produce fruit somehow. This is me working through you and loving others. You see that? Now, what's interesting here, and I'm hoping that this will just maybe do a a little shift for you as we continue this morning, but the word command here or commandment in the original Greek is the word entele. Entele, entele, no, that's undele, but entele, which is often translated, of course, command or precept, but this word has two components. It's en and telos, and telos comes from the word telo, which means this, to set out for a definite point or goal. Listen to this, properly the point aimed at as a limit, that is, by implication, Listen, the conclusion of an act or state. It's literally the result. It goes on to say the ultimate or prophetic purpose. So when Jesus says, I give you a new command or a new commandment, we can literally hear it like this. I give you a new goal for your life. How about this? I give you a new purpose. I want to give you an ultimate purpose for life. Does that change things a little bit? Because what's the first thing you think of when you hear command or commandment? I mean, for me, it's like, I better or else. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's demanded of you. Now, 
I do believe that Jesus was saying, as a follower, you will grow into this. You must. But if this command is him saying, I got a new purpose for you, it takes a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Verse 35, he says, in this environment of your love for one another, if you're living in this place, everyone will come to know your discipleship unto me. In other words, people would realize that's a follower of Jesus. That's someone who's learning from Jesus. So number one, the question is, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? Now, the, the word disciple in the Greek, mathetes, means learner. One who follows one's teachings. So, I mean, it's pretty basic, pretty simple. You, you're learning something. Uh, it makes me think about this idea of painting. I painted for over 20 years. Interior, exterior, commercial, residential. I still do side work from here to there, here and there. But, but what's interesting about this is I didn't just wake up one morning with a paintbrush in my hand and a cut can, and I was just cutting stuff. It was just like magic. God has gifted me with a gift. No, I had to learn from someone. Someone trained me. Someone taught me. Now, of course, I learned new ways to do things that work better with just how I would cut and roll and spray and do all these different things. You learn things as you go along. You mess up, right? Remember one time, uh, me and my partner at the time, Kevin, we had never used a sprayer. And so the first time we decided we were going to spray was we were going to spray some spindles on a staircase because it would go faster than brushing every single spindle prime. If you're not sure the process, you have to prime. It was bare wood back then. It was no pre-prime crap, right? It was like, it was actually bare. So we had to prime it, sand it, vacuum and dust, two to three more coats of a finished coat. I mean, this is how it worked. Well, we thought, let's spray. This would be awesome. So we got the sprayer. We rented it from Sherwin-Williams, not knowing anything about spraying. And man, did it turn out amazing. That's a great word for it, amazing. So we didn't know that there were different size tips you should get, right, Pete? Like fine finish tips and turn the pressure down a little bit. And if you have an HVLP instead of an airless, that would probably work better. So we had this air, airless sprayer wide open. And this is back when you used oil for a finish coat. Without a fine finish, anyone who knows painting is like, dear Jesus, please don't come to my house and paint anything. But I learned from this. I remember we were spraying, it was just like everywhere. We're like, it's getting on fast, but it's running a lot, and it's everywhere. And the homeowner, the wife came home, and she looked, and she goes, wow, when you guys spray, you really spray. And, of course, we wanted to say, she's like, yeah, yeah, that's how we do it. What an idiot, right? <laughs> but since then, I've learned how to use different types of, of sprayers and tips, and I can pretty much spray and do anything in that line of work. I got to the point where people literally, because of how good I was at what I did and that they could trust me in their home and things, that I would just get work nonstop. But it took time because at first I didn't know how to paint. So someone had to train me. So I would watch them do it. And then they would watch me do it. Right? And then I would eventually get off on my own and be able to cut a ceiling without doing this, the wave. Right? And so it took time. You could say that I was a learner of painting. I was literally a disciple of painting. Does that make sense? And so I feel as if Jesus 
is saying to his disciples, and even us today in the 21st century as disciples, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples or my learners. Disciples, I mean, the simplest way we can define it is learners of love. Learners of love. Because Jesus said, this is how they will know. So if the proof is our love for one another, then the skill that we are learning is loving. It's learning how to love like Jesus loves. Now, I know it seems really, really simple, but if you haven't noticed, culture is continually working against discipleship in so many ways when it comes to being a learner of love. Because culture is rooted in self. And self-culture makes life all about yourself and myself looking out for number one. You know, someone asked me this question one time. They said, why is it so hard for believers to receive the gospel? Now, they didn't say unbelievers. They said believers. These are people who said yes to Jesus. You follow me here? And they said, why is it so hard for believers, followers of Jesus, we could say disciples or learners from Jesus to receive the gospel. What is the gospel? It's complete and total forgiveness. It's justification through Christ Jesus. It's we're completely righteous. It's the fact that God really, really loves you right here, right now. And so my answer was this. Well, human nature is about working for reward. And so it's kind of this automatic thing that we try to measure up. And I think that the same thing goes for many in the church world. Church culture says you need to work really hard to be disciples. Come on, have you taken that class, discipleship class? We made it into a class. I'm not against classes. I'm not against learning. But, but here's the problem. Sometimes... When we go to the classes, we're told to do the work, get the badge, check the box, or if you're from the UK watching, tick the box, right? Now I'm a disciple. I've made it. I've got my certificate. I took the class. Nothing wrong with classes. Nothing wrong with certificates. I mean, everyone should get a ribbon, right? <laughs> okay, anyway, that, that went over like a lead balloon. But anyways, what we're saying is performance equals reward. And the problem with this whole idea is that performance becomes the goal instead of love. So am I doing good enough? In fact, sometimes even if we say, well, you must love one another, now we make it something we must do in performance mode, in self-effort mode. And Jesus is saying, you can't produce any fruit except by me. So oftentimes in discipleship, we're like, well, Jesus got us to the gate, right? His grace is sufficient. It's amazing. He, he got me in now, right? I'm no longer in the kingdom of darkness. I'm in the kingdom of light. This is great. And he's like, all right, man, go for it. And it's like, he's just kind of cheering us on from afar. Perform for me. Do your best. No, he saves us. And then he continues saving us the whole time. 
including producing the fruit of love, joy, patience, peace, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These fruit of the Spirit are produced by who? God and Jesus. In fact, in in John 15, this whole leading up to us loving one another, proving our discipleship, there's a whole story of the vine and the branches. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You can't produce anything without me. And so for me, as a follower of Jesus who has been all over the map for a long time, it really helped secure me. It helped take the pressure off that it's not about performing for Jesus or performing for God or performing for people. It's allowing Jesus to live his life through me. And as he lives his life through me, I begin to produce the fruit of, say, love. And he's doing it through me. That's why it's, it's easier now for me to hear things, which we don't hear in church a lot, but Jesus said to love your enemies. He said to pray for those who persecute or despitefully use you. It's easy to skip over those parts, right? It's easy to say, I love Jesus, but I hate that guy. I love Jesus, but you walk across the street so you can avoid that person. I'm getting real, talking to myself. Well, they're different than me. Yeah, there was a lot of people different than Jesus, and he hung out with every single one of them. Why? Not to point out the sin in them, but to point out the sun in them. Big difference. And so we've taken on this burden of, we think we have to go around and point out sin in everybody to make sure they get right. When the truth is, when you tell somebody who they truly are, a son of God that's been lost, all of a sudden they're like, okay, wait a minute here. And they start to get a little bit better picture of who God has already created them to be. And I know some people struggle with that. They're like, well, I mean, you know, but think about when, when Adam and Eve, when they sinned, man, I mean, God left them. Well, not according to the story I read in Genesis. He sought them out, even in their sin. And then, this is what blows my mind, is then God offered the very first animal sacrifice. Not so God could be okay with them, so they could feel comfortable with God. He said, I will clothe your shame. Don't be ashamed. And then they were sent out of the garden, and there's a lot of different scholarship on why. But the thing is, God didn't send them out and leave them. He went with them. We, we see all through scripture. I mean, the very first murder before Cain murdered Abel, God was right there saying, listen, listen, son, sin crouches at your door looking for opportunity. Don't give in. Why would he do that? Because that's what any good father would do. Instruct us, help us through life. And even when he still went on to give in to his thoughts and emotions and commit the first murder, What did God do? He marked him for protection. Blows my mind. This is how merciful and gracious God is. Now listen, we know, I mean, if if any of us have read the scriptures, we know that the wages of sin is death, right? But God isn't paying the wages, sin is. So when we make, I like what one guy says, he says, if you sow dumb, you're going to reap dumb. Come on, we all know that. Whether you go to church or not, you do something stupid, you usually get some stupidity back. It's just how it works. And so then we can see the heart of Father in this. 
But again, the problem with this idea is that performance becomes the goal instead of love. If, if we don't have our anchor in love, then what we do is we find ourselves drifting further and further away from the shore, the shores of his love. And guess what? That's the safest place to be. Now, I love what the Apostle Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And I want to start with verse 16. Paul says this. He says, I'm asking God to give you a gift from the wealth of his glory. Now, stop right there for a minute. I was running over my notes this morning. And, you know, sometimes you don't notice things right off the bat, but then something just jumps out at you. I was reading this, and Paul is praying here. Like, this is his heart's desire. He's requesting from God to give you a gift from the wealth of his glory. And I remembered that this word glory in the original Greek is the word doxa or doxa, however you want to, you really want to get Greek with it. But it means to have a good opinion of. And right there I'm like, he's already starting off saying he's asking God to give you a gift from the wealth of his great opinion of you. Isn't that cool? He goes on to say, I pray that he will give you the inner strength and power through his spirit. Then Christ, say then Christ, will live in you through faith. Now stop there for a second because I want us to know we've already went over this whole earning and reward system, right? What, what Paul isn't saying is if you do the right things, then Christ will live in you. See, this, this whole, if you think about the gospel, the presentation all through the scriptures, especially the New Testament, it was this idea of you are dead in your trespasses. It talks about death or being dead. Now, if you actually look at the original meanings of these words, you could actually put the word sleep in there. How many have ever been asleep? How many have ever been asleep on the job? <laughs> Here's, thanks for being honest, guys. Because <laughs> you were on the railroad, you could just go to sleep in the engine. But, but here, not in the engine. But think about this. When you're asleep, you're not aware of what's going on around you. That's why, for instance, when we, when we do praise and worship, that's what we call it in the church world, we're never begging the Holy Spirit to be with us. Like, if we sing in the right, right key, in the right cadence, and the harmonies are perfect, the Holy Spirit's like, oh, that's a sweet sound. I'm going to come and inhabit your praises today. But what do we usually say? Let us become more aware of your presence because you haven't gone anywhere. That's what praise is about. It's like, it's like refocusing. It's recentering on the fact that God is there. He promised to never leave us and never forsake us. So what does worship do? Listen, worship and prayer is more for us than for God. It's not like God's having some issues like, man, no one's talked to me today. <laughs> now, I will say as a father who's not just spirit, right? I, I have this physical body and emotions. I love it when my children talk to me. It's awesome. So I feel God does too. But it's not like he hangs on every single word, but he loves to be with us, right? But, but the, what is my point? Does anyone know? Because I just lost my train of thought. But my point is here is that we're not begging the Holy Spirit to be here. Here's where I was going with it. We are becoming more aware of his presence. See, the gospel, when it's presented, it's presenting something to us for us to awaken. In fact, the scriptures say, awaken to your righteousness. 
Awaken to this relationship that's already been provided over 2,000 years ago, already done. It's a finished work. Will you awaken to your righteousness? Will you awaken to this relationship that's already there? And so I think it's so important that we see this. So when he says, then Christ will live in you through faith, faith is what? Trust. So we awaken to the fact that he's there, he's living in us, and he wants to live his life through us. We become aware. But look at this. I also pray that love may be the ground in which you sink your roots and on which you have your foundation. This, to me, is directly mirroring what Jesus said when he said that people will know that you're learners or followers or disciples of me by your love walk, right? And then he goes on to say, this way, with all of God's people, you will be able to understand how wide, this is awesome, how long, high, and deep his love is. You see this picture he's trying to paint? Like, guys, his love is so immense. So immense. But look what he says. This kind of stuck out to me, too. He says, this way... With all of God's people, say that with me, with all of God's people. See, I love this idea of intimacy with God. But one thing that they had down really, really well, and maybe it was because of their Jewish roots in the early church, is they would discover God together. It was a group effort. It was a class effort. They would meet home to home and they would discover, he's saying, listen guys, with all of God's people, all of you together, I want you to be able to understand how wide, long, high, and deep his love is. He says, you will know Christ's love, which goes far beyond any knowledge. I am praying this so that you may be completely filled with God. There's, there's that whole idea again of being completely filled, aware, knowing, full revelation. That's the whole idea. We're, we're removed from the, the kingdom of darkness, which is what? Ignorance, not understanding, to the kingdom of light, revelation, and understanding. And how many know it's a journey? There's new revelation. And we talk about this quite often is that a new revelation comes along. And usually the first people who discover the new revelation are the heretics of a group, right? You can't say something new. Well, first of all, it wasn't new. We just discovered it. Right? I mean, when explorers or scientists or whatever, when, when, they, when they discover something, it was always there. They're just discovering now that it is. So it's not really new. It's new to them. And so as we get this new revelation, I think we need to be open to say, wow, here's something new. Holy Spirit, thank you. So number one, a disciple, to answer the question, is a learner of what? Love. A learner of love. Number two, what does a disciple do? What does a disciple do? The short answer is loves. I'm not trying to make this too simple, but I'm going by what Jesus says. His new purpose or commandment for us is to love one another. And that's not just your Christian brother and sister. That's everybody. Love one another just as I have loved you. But maybe that's the long answer. Maybe that's the big answer, right? Because why do I say that? Well, sometimes I think we make the behaviors or the the, I would put it like this, the evidence of love, the big answer. 
You know, we put others first. We say no to sin. We don't gossip. We don't quarrel. We don't hate. We're, we're not jealous. But listen to me. Those are just fruit of the root. And the root is love. See, if you can get this love walk down, you'll produce fruit from the root of love. And then it won't be what I call frankenfruit. It's like your own version of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, those things. It's actually the fruit of the Spirit, which I believe the root of that is love. When Jesus gave his disciples what we call the, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 20, he told them to teach all people, or we could say new disciples, to obey everything I have commanded you. Familiar with this? The disciples were not told to teach them everything I ever did or said, but to teach them to obey everything I have commanded, right? This commandment appears 13 times in 12 verses in the New Testament. And I love this quote from a modern-day theologian. His name is Scott Hahn. He says this, While the Torah, which by the way, Torah just means instruction, while the Torah commanded human love, Jesus commands divine love for one another that is modeled on his own acts of charity. So that's why Jesus can say, I give you a new command or a new end goal or a new purpose. Because this isn't about human love. This is about divine love that's already inside you. So let it out. See, once we understand that, we can look again at John 13. 34 and 35, where Jesus says to disciples, a new command or goal or purpose I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Could he put one more love one another in there? Come on, Jesus. What are you really trying to say? I mean, there's something to this. His command was not, Love your neighbor as yourself. That was an old commandment or purpose. And the journey always is progressing forward, right? What's this new command, this new purpose? Love others as I have loved you. In other words, he was telling them to love others in the same way that he loves them. And when you think about the life of Jesus, if you've taken any time to read anything about the life of Jesus. Jesus loved all people equally, perfectly, and unconditionally. And Jesus is asking us as followers, will you do the same? And it's not always easy. This is the standard. This is the new command or purpose that we are to follow. The only thing commanded was to love as Christ had loved them. Let me ask you this question. Do we think that the disciples were obedient to his request? If just look, for instance, at the letters of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he said of himself, I really think John got this love idea. But in 1 John, he says things like this, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
He goes on to say, and this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, even as he gave us commandment. Let us love one another, for love is of God. In his second letter, he says, not as though I wrote to thee a new commandment, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. If you just look at a couple excerpts from the Pauline letters in Romans 13, 8, it says, Owe no man anything save to love one another. He wrote a letter to the, the church in Thessalonica. He says, For you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Another. You seen a pattern here? And then Peter tells us, I mean, this is the guy who denied Christ three times, and yet Jesus, three, three times on the beach after that denial, says, Peter, do you love me? To say, hey, we're okay. I don't hold this against you. He goes on the right in 1 Peter one twenty two. For you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. How much more does it have to be spelled out? talking to myself. For people to know that we're actual followers of Jesus, love has to be present for one another. So to me, it's not just some flippant message that we say on a Sunday morning. It's a lifestyle that we live 24-7, or at least we're attempting to. Does that make sense? I want to look at one final scripture here in John 15. Verses 9 and 10. This is from the message translation. I I love so much of what Eugene Peterson did in, in the message translation. He says, I've loved you the way my father has loved me. Think about that. Make yourselves at home in my love. See, some of us haven't done that. You ever wondered why it's so hard to love your enemy? It's most likely because you have not made yourself at home in his love yet. You don't know that you're truly loved. You're still in performance mode. You're still trying to earn some type of reward. But listen, he's already given us all things for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. It's a done deal. So when I say, you are loved, in my best Joel Olstein voice, it's not some flippant thing. It's the truth. You are loved. So embrace it. Get used to it. Say, I mean, own it. Say, this is who I am. I am loved. Look what he goes on to say. If you keep my commandments, now, in the old days, I would read this stuff and go, here we go, I've got to brace up for this. But what about this? If you keep my ultimate goal or purpose for you, a little different, you'll remain intimately at home in my love. Now, do you notice that the love doesn't come because you perform or do something? He's saying, listen, make yourselves at home in my love, and then listen, if you get this purpose and this goal, you'll remain there. Because you're the only person that can take you out of that place. And technically, you're never out of it anyway. It's here in the mind that you think somehow you've fallen fallen out of the love or the grace of God. Are you following me here? He says, that's what I've done. I've kept my father's commands or his ultimate goal or purpose for me and made myself at home in his love. What I I believe Jesus is saying is, do you see how my father loves me? That's how I love you. Jesus is preaching unconditional love. I mean, this is just who, who Jesus was and what he was all about. Isn't that good news? 
That's the gospel in a nutshell. It's all about love, his love for humanity. And when we embrace that, when we take on this new goal or purpose for life, we begin to live or make ourselves at home in his love. I'm telling you what, it begins to pour out of you because you can't contain it. It's so high and long and deep and wide. You can't contain it. It just spills over into others and like, man, that person's loving me. What is going on here? I'm not even lovable. That's what Jesus did. He made the unlovable feel loved. Come on, man. That's divine love right there. His love, I believe, is a rock-solid fact that you can build your life on. But here's the thing. You won't have a rock-solid life unless you receive it. There's something about receiving love. People could love you, love, 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 love. But if you don't receive it, you'll never feel loved. You ever been in a relationship a really bad relationship where you're loving the person as much as you can and they're like, you just don't love me. You're like, what? See, some people have been so bruised and battered emotionally in life, they don't even know how to receive or recognize true love. But Jesus wants to heal those areas in our life. So I want to read this again from, this is a new translation called the ASBV. Have you heard of it? That's the Andrew Scott Baransic version. But I want you to just close your eyes for a minute because I love to do this sometimes. I'll just sit down and I'll take a scripture verse and I'll look at the original language and I'll just kind of write it out, just kind of my own inspiration so you can take or leave it. But I want you to just close your eyes and meditate for a moment. I know a lot of us that's hard to do. Meditate, close my eyes, I got stuff to do. Just take a deep breath, let it out. This is a new age. This is, this is called meditate. This is from God. Breathe in. Breathe out. Now, I want you to picture Jesus saying this to you. Exist in my love. Abide. Live. Be settled permanently in my love. Sink your roots deep and be grounded firmly in my love for you. Don't let people, society, or religion try to sell you my love. Look to me, I believe Jesus is saying, because you already have my love. It's not about earning or deserving. When all else fails, my love is still present. My love is the one everlasting constant that will hold your world together if you receive it. So receive it. Bask in it. Immerse yourself in it. Stay in it. Live in it. Because when it boils down, love is the beginning and the end of discipleship. You received that this morning? Love is the beginning and the end of discipleship. We could say that it's the ultimate goal or purpose for our lives, according to Jesus. Can I get an amen? I, I did one of those this morning for you. So here's a question. Will you decide today to be a disciple? A disciple who is, by definition, a learner and a learner of God's love. And then will you pick up relationships along the way, along this journey, and show them the way of love? as a disciple who is making disciples. This is what Jesus means 
when he says, be my disciple, follow me. People will know you're my disciple by your love for one another. So say this with me. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. You didn't sing it with me. There's no turning back. And this shouldn't be hard or laborious. I'm not saying it won't be, it won't be hard to, to walk in, but I'm saying mentally, I don't want you to get to a place where all of a sudden it becomes something you do to earn. Like, okay, here's a list. I better start loving more. No, no, no. Let the Jesus in you live his life through you and cultivate the fruit in your life. And, I mean, if it's your first time here, I say this a lot, but how many know this, that fruit is meant to be enjoyed? One of the biggest crops that we grow here in Michigan are apples, right? And so, you know, when you go to, uh, we're a big exporter of apples all around the U.S. I don't know if it goes around the world, but have you ever been to an apple orchard? And there's nothing like a fresh-picked apple. I mean, there's nothing like, we, we grew all kinds of containers this year of jalapenos and peppers and water. The watermelon was outstanding. I'm like, this is watermelon, right? But when you grow stuff fresh and you pick it fresh, it tastes so good, doesn't it? But imagine that this love and joy and peace and patience, the fruit of the spirit, it's not just for you to enjoy. You're a branch. And why do people love branches so much? Because they produce fruit. And why do they love when you produce fruit? Because they can pick the fruit and they can enjoy the fruit. See, the fruit's not just for you, it's for others to enjoy. That's when we get outside ourselves and we realize this is what love is all about. Amen. Let's pray together. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.